Thank you so much. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, as Pastor Dave said, we're going to be continuing or finishing, wrapping up our spin series. And as Pastor Dave mentioned, you know, we're looking at different pieces of scripture that tend to get spun away from their intended meeting. And so we're trying to reframe them in an appropriate manner in light of their context and what's going on in that scripture so we can read them more meaningfully, but also just get a better understanding of how we can read scripture in general. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew 18, 20, a verse that you hear all the time in church. It's even a verse that when you go to Hobby Lobby, you probably see it on decor. Um, so let me just, let me read it to you this morning, Matthew 18, 20. It says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now, back in high school, I went to a private Christian school. And anyone who's gone to a Christian school knows that Christian senior trips are a little bit different than your public school senior trips, you know? Uh, you don't go on a vacation, you go on a missions trip disguised as a vacation. So for mine, we got to go to the beautiful country of the Dominican Republic, which I was excited about because as you might know, I'm a big fan of baseball and uh, a lot of baseball players come from Dominican Republic. So I'm like, I'm gonna go see the next David Ortiz. This is gonna be amazing. Um, I don't know if I did, but maybe. But anyways, you know, as we were getting ready for the trip with my parents, you know, we were packing and getting everything ready. My parents wanted to get me a disposable camera so I could take pictures. Yes, this was before. I mean, there was, there was picture phones back then, but they were, you know, those pictures you would take and they're like grainy. You're like, what am I looking at? You know, is this like a person or like a blob? I don't know. So we had to get a disposable, disposable camera um, so I could take pictures while on the trip. And the trip, it was an absolute blast. I loved it. You know, we got to go and uh, hang out with some kids in this village and paint a house, got to go to an orphanage, play with more kids. And then on the very last day, we got to go to this tropical island, you know, the blue tropical water, white soft sand, you know, the palm trees. It was absolutely amazing, so beautiful. I had a blast. So anyways, we went, made our way, you know, back home. And when I got back home to my parents, the first thing they wanted to see was my disposable camera. Now, do you know how many pictures I took while I was on my trip in the Dominican? Zero! I didn't take a single picture while on my trip. And my parents, I'll be honest, they weren't very pleased. You know, they spent money on this camera. They wanted to see the pictures of my time there, and I didn't take a single one. But in my defense, hear me out, when you're there in that experience, a picture never compares to the real experience, right? Anyone agree with me? Am I wrong about that? Like, have you ever gone to anywhere that's like beautiful, maybe like some, I don't know, the, the lake or up north or any place that looks amazing and you think, man, this is so amazing. And you take a lot of pictures and the pictures, they may turn out great. They may look beautiful, but they don't compare to actually being there, right? Am I wrong about that? Am I not? Okay, thank you. Now I share that story because I think it describes how we use Matthew 18, 20. We see the beauty of the photograph, but we don't actually go on the vacation to experience the full beauty of the photo. In other words, we read Matthew 18, 20, and we see that God is with us when we gather together, and nothing is truer. We gather together as followers of Christ, and when we do that, God is present with us, and we honor God because Christianity was not intended to only be a personal and private practice. It was meant to be shared in community because we were made for community. So the fact that Matthew, so when you read Matthew 18, 20, and you read it at face value, it's true. But if we take three steps back and we look at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 18, we see that the truth of the verse has so much more meaning when we discover the context of why Matthew included it in the passage. 
And so today we're going to take a few steps back to better understand Matthew 18, 20. And three things are going to give us context today. Are you ready for it? It's children, sheep, and the church. Now, if you're thinking, Pastor Kevin, what are these three things going to show us about this verse? Don't blame me, blame Jesus, okay? You're going to find out why. Because as we walk through Matthew 18, we'll see that there's a specific instance in which God's presence is essential, and children, sheep, and the church help set that up for us. So let's dive into Matthew 18, 20, and we'll start at the very beginning. Let me read Matthew 18, 1 through 4 to you. Now, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm just going to pause there because whenever I read this passage, I often think, what were the disciples thinking asking Jesus that question? Have you ever, ever wondered that before? You know, like, are they that dumb that they would ask Jesus who's the greatest? Now, that's an easy response or reaction for us because we know the end of the story. But for the disciples, you know, they were living in the story. They didn't know the end. They didn't have the full picture. They were living in the moment. And so while they were learning how to live like Jesus, how to serve, how to love, how to care for others, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, there's a good chance they were expecting Jesus to have some type of physical kingdom during their lifetime. And probably up until Jesus dies on the cross, they were probably expecting Jesus to become some type of political figure or leader who would challenge the Roman Empire, which he did, just not in the way that they were expecting, right? So let's keep reading and keep that in your mind. Verse number two, Jesus, conveniently, called a little child to him and put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So why do you think that Jesus would say that children are the greatest in the kingdom. Now, obviously the answer is why I became a children's pastor, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now we often read this verse and we think, well, it's because children, you know, they're innocent, they're pure, they're humble, they're trustworthy. And all those qualities are ones that we should embrace as followers of Jesus. But there's actually more to it than just that. You see in that day and age, children weren't valued like they were in the same way today at least outside of Jewish and Christian communities. You know, in, back in that day, it was very much a man's society. You know, men held the power. They were in charge of the family. They were in charge of the society. And so below men were women, certain ethnicities that were deemed as lesser, and also as children. And so children, for some societies back then, were almost viewed as property until they were old enough to begin to contribute to carry on their family responsibilities. So what Jesus is saying is that, yes, we should embrace the positive childlike traits, but he's telling the disciples that the greatest are those who are willing to humble themselves as those who are lowest in society rather than seeking personal gain. So does that mean that we need to turn down that job promotion? No, of course not. Don't do that unless, you know, you feel like God's telling you to, but you don't have to. What Jesus is showing us is that the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, all people are equal, regardless of social status. So whether you're a pastor, whether you're a CEO, whether you work for the CEO or you're homeless, in God's eyes, we are all of equal value and status because our value is not found in what we do. It's found in who we are and we are made in God's image. So as we take those promotions and we gain more authority and, you know, in our spheres of influence, 
we must be just as committed to leading selflessly, generously, with compassion and love as we were when we were at the bottom of the ladder. Might be a little bit trickier, but we have to have just as much uh, focus on that as well. Now, that's probably not the answer that the disciples were expecting. In fact, it's the exact opposite. But greatness isn't achieved by how much power and authority you can gain for the promotion of self, but by how much you're willing to give away for the sake of Christ. The disciples, they were looking for a political figure, but Jesus became a humble servant. And by doing so, he started a movement that had outlasted and brought more change than any political movement in the history of humanity. And I don't say that to say that politics aren't important because they do. They bring change to society. However, imagine how different our world would be if we as a church were committed to the way of Christ as we are to a political cause or agenda. God doesn't need politics to change the world. He needs us right where we're at. Let's keep reading verse number five. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if he calls one of these little ones who trust me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yikes. You know, if you continue that, 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 those verses in the 7 through 10, you see that Jesus only exasperates the severity of leading a child astray. Now, when Jesus talks about leading little children astray, he's referring back to the idea of who is greatest in the kingdom being those who are like little children. So I'm sure Jesus wouldn't take it lightly if you intentionally raise your kid to be a horrible person. Don't do that. Jesus is more directly saying not to do anything that would hurt your fellow brother or sister's relationship with Jesus. And so that imagery of tying a millstone around your neck and drowning is quite the visual. And that's not to be taken literally, thank goodness. But Jesus uses that extreme example to show the severity of how inappropriate it is for a follower of Jesus to spiritually hinder another believer. We are to care for one another as if we're caring for Christ himself. So we have children, and now let's move on to the sheep. Now what's funny about sheep is there's usually two kind of reactions to sheep. Either you're the person to think, oh, sheep are so cute. They're so fluffy. I want to be my pet. Or you're like me and you see a sheep and you're like, man, euros are really good. I don't know which one you are, but I'm on the euro side for some reason. Anyways, let's read the parable of the lost, of the lost sheep in verses 12 through 14. It says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that was lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the other 99 that didn't wander away. But in the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Now, you might notice that Luke 15 in your Bibles, it contains the same parable, but actually with some minor differences. And the big one difference is that the sheep aren't lost like they are in Luke. In Matthew, they're wandering away. So Luke, he demonstrates God's heart for those who don't have a relationship with him from the start. Whereas Matthew, remember, he just spent time talking about not causing another believer to stumble. So Matthew continues the analogy of children, and he transfers, transfers it to the sheep who are being led away. So these sheep are followers of Jesus who are wandering from the flock. So imagine this shepherd with a hundred sheep, 
which means he's a pretty wealthy dude. You know, the Elon Musk of sheep, and one of his Tesla runs away. No, probably not that rich, but he's still pretty wealthy. But this sheep being led away by the sight of a, you know, crisp green patch of grass, or uh, here's the sound of a running uh, brook right by him, and he leads him away. And the shepherd leaves the 99 perhaps alone or in the care of maybe someone else, and regardless of which it is, their normal level of care is lessened to go after the one. And so the point of Matthew's parable, the lost sheep, is to demonstrate a disproportionate investment of effort and concern for the one wandering sheep. He had 99 sheep. He didn't need the one. He sure didn't need to sacrifice the care of the 99 to go after the one. But that shows us God's heart that all are of equal value to God, and God's heart is greatly broken for those wandering away. There's care, there's concern, and there's compassion. You know, earlier this year, beginning of 2020, 2020, man, it was getting us. There were a couple of YouTube stars who happened to be Christian. I didn't even realize that until, like, I read this article, but I occasionally watched them in high school. You know, they're one of the people that I'd go on YouTube and watch, and I didn't realize that they were even still making videos today, but I guess they were. And I saw online somewhere an article that talked about these two YouTube stars, how they made a couple podcasts basically saying that they were walking away from their faith and were identifying as, as um, hopeful agnostics, what they called themselves. And I was intrigued because I, you know, I cared about them in high school. They thought they were funny. They were nice guys. And so I read the articles and listened to the podcasts. I was, I was interested. But when I was looking at those videos, I saw comments that some were nice and saying, hey, you know, we love you, we care about you, we support you. But there were also others who were angry. You know, people saying, how could you walk away from the faith? You must have never been a Christian in the first place. And when I read those things, I was appalled. You know, it's okay to be upset when someone walks away from their faith. We should be, you know, sad. We should be concerned. We should have compassion for those that are having doubts or wandering away or they make a mistake. But we must be careful with how we respond. To respond to a wandering believer any way other than with compassion, grace, and love is not God's heart. God's heart is that we would meet them in their wandering and walk alongside them in the hope that they return. So Jesus has explained so far in Matthew 18 that we're to humble ourselves as we follow him. We're to care for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on our spiritual journey together, not to hinder one another. Now, that all sounds good, right? But what does that look like for us in the church? Well, that's where Jesus turns his attention next. And it'll actually lead us up to Matthew 18, 20. So we have children, we have sheep, and now we have the church. Here we go. Let's read. If another brother sins, another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything they say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And then if he won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. Now, at first glance, it may seem like Jesus has changed the complete direction of this teaching, right? He's talking about sheep, you know, uh, children, and now we're talking about this, like what's going on. What he's actually doing is applying it to the community of faith. So one thing I want to point out to you that I think will be helpful is actually in verse uh, 15, when it says, if your brother or believer sins against you. Now, most translations include that, but some translations, such as the Net Bible, they don't include the against you part. It just says, if a, bro- if a believer sins. 
Now, the reason for this is that earlier manuscripts, we have manuscripts that really smart people read and then took it to our translations and made our Bibles today, right? So some of the earlier manuscripts, it only said if a believer sins, then you do this. Now, the later ones say if a believer sins against you. Now, don't worry, it doesn't mean that your Bible is wrong. Actually, in verse 21, it says that Jesus is going to actually address that issue of how, um, what we're to do if someone sins directly against you. But it might be helpful for us in this case to keep that against you part off because it's not just talking about conflict resolution. When we continue Jesus' train of thought from the earlier passages that we just read, we realize that it makes a ton of sense that Jesus is talking about how to help the sheep who are wandering away. So this teaching is actually to be taken as general advice on how to help someone who's dealing with sin and struggle that might be hurting their relationship with God. And although please still use it for conflict resolution because it definitely applies and it's helpful advice, but there's just a little bit more. So after Jesus, you know, but so Jesus is saying, just like in the parable where the shepherd was willing to go after the wandering sheep, we are to do the same thing for our follow, fellow followers of Christ. So if you notice a friend that's struggling with something or going through a hard time or having doubts, you're not supposed to go and rebuke them. Hey, cut it out. Or reject them. I'm never going to talk to you again. Or gossip about them behind their back. That's not what we're supposed to do. You're not supposed to go tell Pastor Dave, hey, it's your job to handle this. That's not what it's saying. In fact, the word pastor or church leader, it isn't used in this passage. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the Christian. Anyone sitting in these chairs right now, including myself, you're to lovingly go to them and see how they're doing. So when we read passages like this, it's very easy for us to think that it's our job to be the perfection police, right? To go around and show that no mistake is ever making in my presence. And it's not. Another mistake we can think is that it's appropriate to handle this situation, these situations in a condemning manner, right? Like, you're a sinner, how could you? Change, you're out of here. It's not about three strikes and you're out if you don't change. Here's the truth is that these three steps aren't Jesus's quick solution to quickly weed people out of the church. In fact, in most situations, if handled appropriately, we'll never make it past that one-on-one -on -one conversation. Because, if we, because you only go to step two and three if they continually refuse to listen, if they completely deny What's going on. And so if we approach someone with the heart of the shepherd, with love, compassion, kindness, empathy, out of relationship, we'll very rarely need to jump to step two. And a lot of times I feel like we avoid confrontation because we always assume the worst case scenario, right? Like, but in most cases, if we notice something is up with someone that we care about, and we go to them and ask if they're doing okay, more times than not, they're either going to admit that, you know, you're right, I'm struggling with this thing. I'm going through this hard time. I'm having these doubts. Can you walk alongside me as I'm get going, going through this season? Or you might even realize that the thing that you thought was wrong wasn't even true. You know, they're, they're doing okay, and you just, you know, misread the situation. And because you re reached out to them in a loving and caring way, they weren't offended. They said, thank you for noticing. Thank you for coming out to me. I know that I trust you and that you're there for me if I'm ever going to go through something, and you're, I'm going to be there for you too. However, if we approach someone in an accusatory and harsh way, then they're going to get defensive or fight back. And remember what Jesus said about causing someone to stumble? We'd be better off with a millstone around our neck and go jumping in the lake. So don't do that. Confrontation isn't how we're to go about it. Or excuse me, confrontation isn't wrong. It's how we go about it. 
So if we feel the need to love, if we feel the need out of love to approach someone, we must handle it with the heart of Christ. And that requires grace, empathy, patience, humility. And we must recognize that the complete restoration is often a process, not a one-time event. And so if you feel led to call something out in someone's life, you must be willing to stick with them as they work it out. So when I picture, you know, the shepherd going after the one wandering sheep, I don't picture him picking up the sheep and just walking back to the flock. I see him walking alongside the sheep, letting him, you know, take his own path until he makes it back with the rest of the sheep. So back to Matthew 18, if you meet one-on-one with someone and they don't listen, then you invite two along with you to moderate and ensure that you're right in your assessment and to show that individual that there's a bigger deal going on than maybe they realize. And if they still don't listen, then the verse says that it went to the entire community. And when it gets to that level, if they're still willing to change, then we realize that maybe they aren't in line with the way of Christ and they might not have been a fit for that community. Now, for us today, that seems harsh. You know, we can't imagine pastor coming on stage and saying, this person messed up and they're not going to come back to church on a Sunday morning. But once again, we have to remember the context of who Jesus is talking to. See, the church back then looked kind of different than it does today. And that's not to say that church today is bad or wrong, just simply that our church adapts to the society that it's a part of. So for these new church communities that we read about in Acts and the Epistles, Many of them met in homes that took place around a table, around a meal. They lived life together throughout the week, and those are things that we want to strive for as a church. But there was strong relational equity in those first churches. So everyone knew each other, and they were vested in one another. They cared about one another. And if someone stopped attending, there probably would be a need to let them know, hey, there's 20 of us here, one person's not here, what's going on? They probably wanted to know why that one person wasn't there. So for us today, step three probably isn't going to be bringing some up on stage and saying, this person messed up, right? Step three for us might be, hey, this person that we love in our friend group, you know, they're struggling, having a hard time. We need to keep them in prayer. Or it might be, you know, going to your table, not the whole church. Does that make sense? We've got to think about the context and the day and the age. So we have children, we have sheep, we have the church, and that leads us to our verse today. Let's read Matthew 18 through 20. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Now these verses that I just read, they're very closely connected with prayer. There's an assumption that throughout this entire process that there would be prayer for wisdom, direction, and reconciliation. So my translation that I put up on screen, it said that, you know, whatever you forbid on heaven is forbid on earth. And some translations use the words uh, binding and loosing. And the idea here is simple, that God has given this community authority to act upon his will in this situation. In other words, God is in agreement with the community's decision. There is no need to doubt whether they made the right choice or if they handled it okay, if they did it in a way that was with the heart of the shepherd. And this is comforting because it can be hard to let someone go, right? And we, but we must acknowledge that we can't force change upon anyone. We must leave it in God's hands and let him work on their hearts. It's okay to let go. God's bigger than us. So verses 19, it agrees with the verse 18, that when two agree together in prayer, there is strength in numbers, 
the motivation is pure, and God is in agreement. And that brings us to our verse today, finally, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Now this statement or this theme of God being with us is actually seen in a couple other verses in Matthew's gospel. We hear it just before Jesus' birth in Matthew 1.23, when they say that he'll be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And we hear it right before Jesus leaves earth and ascends into heaven in Matthew 28, 19-20, the Great Commission. Jesus wraps it up by saying, And surely I'm always with you to the very end of the age. And then he ascends into heaven. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes in Matthew 28 for a second. You know, the man that gave up everything to follow, had died, rose back to life, and now he's saying, it's your job to carry on what I'm doing. And then he ascends into heaven and says, I'm with you. You better believe that the disciples probably wondered from time to time if they were doing the thing that Jesus wanted them to do, right? Like, are we doing this right? Is this what Jesus would have done? But by saying that I'm with you to the end of the age, that God is with us, it's letting them know that Jesus, even though Jesus isn't physically present with them, his abiding presence is still with them as they gather together. And together they are continuing his work on his behalf. And so in context of chapter 18, for us, when life gets messy, when people have doubts or begin to wander, God is there. If you maintain the heart of the shepherd in those difficult times, his presence will guide you through any situation. And that's true for us today. We are not alone. You are not alone. With Jesus, you never will be. Now, it'd be wrong for us to ignore the last, you know, 14 verses of Matthew 20 or 18 after it comes to this far. So let me just quickly go over this then with you. You know, in, in verse, uh, in this next verse, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, meaning that we should unconditionally forgive those who wrong us, right? And then the parable of the unforgiving debtor comes up, where long story short, a servant is forgiven a great debt by his king. But ironically, the, that servant that was forgiven goes to a servant that owed him money, and he didn't give him the same mercy as the king did to him. And you can read the whole thing for yourself. It's a good one. But Jesus closes out the door, his discourse by stating that we are to generously and graciously forgive because God graciously and unconditionally forgives us time and time again. And once again, that's what? The heart of the shepherd. I realize we covered a ton today, a ton of verses. So let me sum it all up for you. The goal of Matthew 18 was to demonstrate what the life of a Christ follower should look like within the community of faith. And so a follower of Christ must be willing to humble themselves like a child while looking out for one another with the heart of a shepherd while knowing that Christ is always present in community. Now that all sounds good, but how do we begin to embrace this way of life? Well, let me give you three quick takeaways that can guide how we engage one another as described in Matthew 18. And I'm gonna call it the Matthew 18 mindset. A Matthew 18 mindset takes place in relationship. It focuses on reconciliation and it confronts our reality. Let me break that down real quick. Relationship. Before we can speak into someone's life, we must have a relationship with them. The words of a friend hold so much more weight and value than that of a stranger, right? Because we know they're invested and genuinely care about our life. We know they're committed to being there for us. And so before we can speak into someone's life or, to help or point something out, we need to have a relationship with them. 
It doesn't mean that we can fake a relationship so that we can correct them. That goes against everything Matthew 18 has talked about. That's not childlike. But as a follower of Christ, we need relationship. We need community because we ourselves one day, we might need someone to come check in on us and see how we're doing because no one is exempt from making mistakes. No one is exempt from having doubts or going through a hard time. We need people to come alongside us in those seasons, every single one of us. The second thing, reconciliation. The whole heart of Matthew 18 is focused on reconciliation. As we humble ourselves and say, less of me and more of you, God, God begins to reconcile the areas of weakness in our life. As we look out for those who are having doubts or struggling or going through a hard season, with, we do so with the heart of reconciliation because we want them to find health and wholeness in their lives, not just because they don't like what they're doing. There's a heart behind it. And so every action should be done out of love, empathy, compassion, and care. The motive is reconciliation. And number three, reality. As we humble ourselves and prioritize reconciliation, we will be forced to face our reality. It's gonna point things out in our lives that maybe we aren't comfortable acknowledging. We may realize that a large part of the way we live our life is focused on making a name for ourselves rather than bettering those that are around us. And as a result, we might have to change certain things that we prioritize or say yes or no to. We might have to change how we uh, do certain things at work or in our personal lives in order to better embrace the heart that God desires. And may confront the way that we see other people. As we begin to focus on relationship and reconciliation, we may be confronted with the reality that there's certain people in the body of Christ that maybe we stereotype or maybe we write off or maybe we attack simply because we don't agree with their ideology or identify with their social status or differ in ethnicity. And what I love about Jesus is that he wasn't afraid of different. He spent a ton of, ton of time caring and spending time with those who either he was different than or those who his community might not have accepted. In fact, the people who angered Jesus the most were those who were the most like him. Did you know that? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were the Jewish leaders. Jesus was Jewish. And they were the ones that opposed him the most. And so if we want to look like Christ, we can't be afraid to broaden our horizon. And it starts here in the church. It means that we must acknowledge that every individual in the body of Christ is equal in God's eyes because we're all made in God's image. Our value isn't found in what we do. It's found in who we are and we are made in God's image. And so a Matthew 18 mindset takes place in relationship, it focuses on reconciliation, and it confronts our reality. And it would be wrong for us today to simply just stop there and say, all right, go do that. I would, I would hate for you to go home and think, that was a great message, or that was a terrible message, why do you even say that stuff? And not do anything about it in your personal life. And so I wanna leave you with a quick challenge. I wanna take a minute for us to reflect and for you to think about your next step and maybe embracing a Matthew 18 mindset. And so I want you to take time to focus on one of the three words, you know, a relationship, reconciliation, and reality. And take a second to pray, to reflect, and think of what is your next step to focus on relationship, to work on reconciliation, or to improve your reality. Here's a couple of things to help you out with that. Think about, are you involved in community? Does your community look like you or sound like you? Are there people that you need to build a relationship with? 
Reconciliation, is there anyone in your life that you need to come alongside? Do you need someone to come alongside you? Who do you need to forgive or apologize to? And third reality, what next step can you take to confront or change the unhealthy realities in your life? Let's take just one quick minute to pick one of these three things out and examine your own life and think, what is my next step to begin changing this in my personal life? And then I'll come back and pray for us as a community. challenge today, maybe write down what you're thinking, you know, on a piece of paper or in your phone. As you continue to think about that throughout the week, because we don't want it to end just right here. But let's pray together as a community. God, I thank you, Lord, for Matthew 18 and, and just your example of your love for us, your care for us, the heart of a shepherd, that you come after us when we wander, not out of anger, not out of condemnation, but because you love us and you deeply care about us. And so help us, God, as people who are representing you, as people who are working on your behalf in this world and in this building, that we would embrace the heart of a shepherd, that we would see those around us who are maybe different than us and see them with your eyes as people that are made in your image, who matter, who value, who you love, and in turn, who we love, regardless of what they do, because they're made by you. Help us, God, to take the next step that we need to focus on our relationships, to make reconciliation the motive behind what we do, and that we confront our reality and do so in a way that honors you. In your name we pray. Amen.